Welcome to Real Men Feel. I am your host, author, coach, and healer, Andy Grant. Thank you for joining us today as we explore what it means to be a man. Most guys recognize themselves as men, but may not be clear on how to be a man. Is it following someone's lead, their definition, your training? Is it heeding the rules? Or is it from your own experience? If you would like to dig deeper into your experience of being a man one-on-one with me, visit theandygrant.com slash talk, and let's discuss it. Go to theandygrant.com slash talk, because you are worthy of being your authentic self. My guest today is Adam Homey. Adam is a speaker, author, consultant, and trainer with 20 years experience helping business creators win at the game of business and marketing so they can thrive at the intersection of brilliance and passion while making a difference in the world. Adam opens up about his initiation into manhood, his introduction to the man box, and the idea of false courage. We explore the impact of such phrases as man up and look at how we define being a man. Adam stresses that facts and the truth are not the same thing. You'll discover that I was not an American history major in college, and you'll learn how minimalism can help your business. Let's get to it. Welcome to Real Men Feel. It's great to talk to you. It is always a pleasure to speak with great individuals like you, and I look forward to doing what I can to make a difference for your community market and audience. Thank you so much for having me. Beautiful. You know, I'm feeling the hit to ask you a question that I get asked a lot right off the bat. So what does Real Men Feel mean to you? You know, what it means is, this is going to sound almost like I'm taking your catchphrase and just flipping it, is having the feelings of what it means to really be a man. You and I have spoken before, uh, part of the reason we're here today, and we had a conversation about how the definition of be a man sometimes gets distorted, even bastardized, particularly when we're being raised. The idea of being a man is don't be afraid, don't be a wuss, or be assertive, but don't be seen or heard. And after a while, you wonder why you've gotten to be about 25 years old, And you kind of don't even know what it means to be a man. And then you have these other manly men saying, you're got to learn how to be a man. Well, I am a man. That's what it means to me. And I'm sure we'll develop that further in our conversation. My next question, I feel like it's already answered, but has what being a man means to you, has that changed over time? Or is it just set in stone, you know, age eight and you, you know, it's always been true. I believe that, first of all, there's a lot of conflict just in what being a man is defined as. Like, for example, think of the 12 or 13 year old who is reaching a rite of passage within their religion. Let's just use Roman Catholicism as an example because it's a very familiar one. And when you get to be about 12 or 13 years old, you go through confirmation. A similar thing might be in the Jewish faith, the bar mitzvah. So you see these cases where, on the one hand, they're saying, You have now risen to the point in the faith where you are a man. And then if you're supposed to have like a godfather or a confirmation sponsor or a bar mitzvah guide or what have you, they dictate to you who that's going to be. And if you're supposed to take on another name, 
that is supposed to indicate your manhood, they tell you what name you're going to take. I was denied the confirmation name that I wanted because somebody didn't like the confirmation name. And I was told, well, you'll use the name that we want you to use or you won't have a confirmation party. Really? So wait a minute, I'm a man, but at the same time, I'm being told that my manly views on this don't matter. So that's one example. And then another is the idea of what I like to call false courage. All of us have fears. For some, it's cats. Me, it's definitely not cats because my cat is right here. For some, it's rats. I don't mind rats. They play a role. Heights, as long as I'm not on the edge of a cliff, I'm good to go. But mine is trypanophobia, the needle phobia. It all started with a traumatic event in my early childhood that I eventually uncovered through years of hypnotherapeutic exercises and meditation. You know, when I have the trypanophobic reaction to having a needle pointed at me, it's not one of those things where it's gradual, where it's like, you know, like if you get mild food poisoning, you know, you're going to throw up, you know, you have time to get to the bathroom before you hurl. When the fight or flight that's associated with trypanophobia hits, you go straight from, you know, strolling through the daisies to boom, everything starts going white on you. You get all clammy and you know, you're about to pass out. So the idea that you can just be a man, you know, be a man and stop being such a wuss, just a needle is not even applicable. So I hear that to this day because I tell people that, you know, if I were to need to get a blood draw or a vaccination or whatever, I need a week in advance. So I'll schedule it for a week out. And that gives me time to start doing meditation, start doing exercises. And if I find that I need a little boost, it gives me enough time to get in to see a hypnotherapist to really make sure I'm ready for the events. And then I can go in there and, you know, it's all always bliss, stick out the arm. It's all good. But if you force it on me without warning, I'll go directly into that whole thing. The full panic reaction. Right. So yeah, which is something that I cannot control. I don't ask for it. I don't get any pre-warning as I mentioned a moment ago. So the reason I bring this up is so for me to be a man in the situation is to have analyzed where did this come from? What was the incident? What caused it to build up upon itself and get reinforced over the years? And how do I handle it from there. Uh, it got to the point where I couldn't have my blood pressure taken because I'd pass out over that. That's how bad it got because we're dealing with constriction, blood, veins, arteries, so needles, right? So one of the things that I do is if I need to get my blood pressure taken or my vitals or what have you, I'll just say up front, uh, just so you know, I'm really trypanophobic. I'll be fine as long as you tell me a good story. So those medical professionals, and most of them are very good at this, will tell me a good story. Now, whereas before, instead, they'll say, uh, sir, the cuff is off. We're done. So me being a man is coming up with my way of dealing with that that allows me to get through it without a hitch, knowing that I've scheduled a week in advance. Me being a man is recognizing that and reclaiming my power in a situation. Me being a man is if I'm in an emergency room and they want to run tests on me, I challenge that. And if it's something that cannot be avoided, I will tell them up front, I need time to prepare for this. So we're not doing it now. I need 30 minutes. That's being a man to me is recognizing right. the reality of the situation and finding a way to powerfully move through it rather than false bravado or somebody else's definition. Well, a man would just stick his arm out there and say, give me that needle. It's no big deal. Right. It is a big deal. There's something inside me that will probably never be fixed. Yeah. That's what's key. What being a man means is up to each man. 
Yes. And it's got to fit for you and make sense for you and be true and authentic to you. Because I'm sure someone saying, man up, Adam, never fixed anything for you. Uh, in fact, it probably set me backwards in almost every case. Yeah. But I've actually met guys that have received and said, man up, and as a motivational tool, and they don't get that it, because to me it implies, man up, that whatever you're doing is not a man. And they like, yeah. oh, they really did not realize that was a message they were conveying or that it could be received that way. Right. And sometimes subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because on the surface, it may say, okay, well, tell me to be a man. Okay, I am a man. But not only is the real issue right beneath the surface, but because it's being repressed, it's only going to come back stronger. Yeah, you're repressing it more, right? Yes. Yeah, ignore harder the thing that's bothering you. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. And I like the story of confirmation too, because, yes, you're a man, make a choice. Oh, that wasn't the choice we wanted you to choose. All right, you're a man if you agree with our choices we've made for you to be a man. Right. It's like the introduction to the man box and all those sort of the categories and the labels. And mm-hmm. if your society's proper view of a man, welcome to manhood. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Exactly. Another example is, and I see this happen a lot with boys in particular. This is something that, you know, I'm not a parent myself yet, but a lot of people my age are parents of boys who are just getting to that point where they begin to check off the man boxes. And this is something that, at least in this generation, I'm starting to see a lot more awareness of. of let's be careful how we define a man. Let's support that masculinity in a positive way. So I'm happy to see that there's more of it. But, and I don't butt into people's business. I don't say a word unless somebody asks me into the conversation. You know, I look for signs that there may be some patterns being repeated that could cause the repression to continue. And if I have the opportunity where it's respectful and by invitation, I'll give my input on that. Cool. Yeah, again, anyone's definition of being a man, it should bring joy and expansion, a sense of adventure, not falsehood, not a mask, not a weight, right? So, you know, in the little bit that I've seen you online and and talked to you a few times, you seem like a really outgoing man who really enjoys helping people. Does that feel accurate? I'm actually so introverted, they had to make a new category over on the left side for me. And this comes down to another thing. And I'm happy to see that we're making progress as a society here as well. If you have that kid in class who's quiet, they get labeled as bashful, shy, a loner, a hermit. Whereas with a study of the various versions, introversion, extroversion, ambiversion, it mostly has to do with how our physiologies gain and expend energy through social interaction. That doesn't have anything to do with whether somebody's shy or not. A good friend of mine was a top 40 musician. He did concerts all over the country. He could get up on stage and do three sets without a break. But when it came time to meet the fans, he loved his fans, but in doses. So when he did the VIP events, when he did the signings and things like that, his contract strictly defined how long he was to be there. And if it was 45 minutes, at minute 44, his bodyguards would appear and prepare to take him out. And after that, he would go back to his hotel room and sit with a small group, his inner circle. And that was just how he was using his energy to bring him through the experience. It simply was a recognition that his energy came and went in different ways, that what really charged him up was a quiet, small inner circle group. And within that group, he could be extremely animated, very outgoing, very engaging. 
In fact, I learned a lot from my friendship with him, what introversion versus extroversion really means. I'm thinking this guy's supposed to be some big rock star and he sits home at night, every night watching TV. Yeah. Because he's storing up energy for when he does public appearances. Once I got that down, I learned a lot about myself. Yeah. I've never found people that are introverted extra hundred percent of the time. No, it's not an absolute. Yeah. Most people are somewhere in the amber area. I, I mean, as I say, I go so far over here, they had to make a new category for me. And part of my progress in becoming what I feel to be an authentic man is recognizing how this energy works for me. So creates an empowering situation for me so that I can manage my situation. So one thing I've discovered is let's say we're at live seminars are coming back. So we're going to be live seminars again. I know that between the main event and the networking that I can't just go straight from one to the other. I have to go retreat to my room for an hour or two and plug the batteries in, so to speak, which means, no, I'm not sharing a room with anyone. And if possible, I'm going to have a room at a different hotel nearby. That absolutely allows me that space where I can totally cut it off as need be. So I can go retreat for an hour and come back. And you would think I was the matriarch of social butterflies. And I use the term matriarch simply because we think of that as a type of butterfly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought this up. And we went down this introversion topic because I've shared a few times, people listen to all the shows. The first time I went to college, because I had to go twice, my first time in college, I dropped out because of a mandatory public speaking class in my way. Didn't know it then. I just thought I was an introvert. I thought I was terrified of public speaking. What it was, was I didn't like me. I was not authentic. Once I could was comfortable yeah. in my own skin, oh, I can talk to anybody at any time now, right? But at the time, so I thought I was an introvert. I thought, you know, I was afraid of speaking. I thought it was the audience, but it was really, it was me. It was all me. Yeah. And I think that what gets missed in definitions of manhood is that it's a unique experience for every man. I've said many times, there's no such thing as the truth. There are facts that can be empirically, scientifically, and otherwise proven. But however, truth is what each of us views individually through the lens of our education experience and everything else we've been through. You can have three different people view a crime taking place from different angles. All three of them can take a polygraph. All three of them can tell different stories that conflict with each other. All three of them can pass that polygraph. It's because of the point of view they had. For the one person, it looked like a stabbing. For the other person, it looked like self-defense. For the third person, they weren't even sure those two people were in the same place. (laughs) I mean, but with lie detectors and polygraphs, They don't fact check. They test for signs of prevarication. In other words, some sort of manufactured response to create what is something other than your authentic truth or your authentic view. So when they see you having the physiological reactions or they see the countermeasures, that's how they know somebody is lying because they're saying something other than what they believe to be the case. You could have somebody that swears the earth is flat. If it is their truth that the earth is flat and they have done their research and they feel that the earth is flat and can defend this view, then they're going to pass a polygraph when they're asked if the earth is flat. And the fact is the earth is not round either. The earth is actually kind of an oval and science has proven that again and again. It reminds me of the wisdom of George Costanza. Yes. It's not a lie if you believe it's true. And that's what you're saying. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Cool. One of your books is called Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy. Yep, that's one where I cover some of this stuff. I thought it was a great title. So why don't you expand on what you mean by that? All right, that title came about because I was meeting with my business coach. I created most of the guts of what my book was going to be. 
he said, okay, so in your own words, forget about all your positioning statements, everything. In your own words, tell me why you want to write this book and who you want to help with it. And I said, this is for the entrepreneur. This is for the business creator who feels that no matter what they do, if they launch a great thing and they see their business expand, if they muddle through, if their best year ever declarations either happen beyond their wildest dreams or don't happen at all, no matter what happens, it seems like every time the circle comes fully around, they're either having the same conversations about the same issues that never get solved or they're that exact same level of profitability or lack thereof. It's like being in that movie Groundhog Day, except in hell. And he said, ah, that's it. Groundhog Day is an event, not a marketing strategy. It's like, no, this isn't a marketing book, business. But that's where we are. And were you seeing that a lot? Is that? I mean, uh, some of it's almost autobiographical. The book, if you've had a chance to read it, has a number of different characters in it. All of them are of the names changed to protect the innocent variety. A couple of them are partially influenced by my own experiences. I'm not going to say which ones they are. Some of them are friends of mine. Some of them are composites of several people I know where I took their various stories and welded them together into a sequential narrative because I found that to be a great way to pull the reader through the story. Yeah, I've got a lot of books really catch my attention and again, offer your own unique take on things. And I know that you're also a fan of minimalism, which I've seen for the sake of materialism in your home, but not when it comes to business. So how might minimalism apply to a business? Actually, I am all for minimalism and essentialism in business to achieve maximum results. And I can summarize that by, and this is something I mentioned twice in the book. I originally pasted this one article at two separate points in the manuscript by accident. And then when I reviewed it and I finally noticed, hey, haven't I seen this before 30 pages or 100 pages earlier? I decided to leave it because it was that important. So it's actually repeated twice. You look at what you're doing in your business and your life. You look at the habits you follow, you look at the processes you follow, the rules and guidelines you live by, what a company's SOPs are, and you ask, what would happen if we didn't do this at all? The reason you ask that question is because you want to surface what actually impacts your business and life operations and what may be an artificial role that was a permanent overreaction to a temporary blip on the radar. So you can find that if you had a five-step process, maybe it needs to be a three-step process. You can also find it might need to be a seven-step process. But the idea is, is you continuously challenge this. With one of my top clients, we developed something between us a long time ago. We're both very strong personalities. And we found that at first, uh, we actually had a little bit of a challenge even getting along sometimes. So what we discovered is anytime either of us felt that we weren't quite understanding or aligning with the other, we would say, pause, I have a challenge question for you. And the idea behind that is, this is no longer about you. It's not about your id ego or superego. This is not about who's right or who's wrong. I'm simply looking at this and I'm raising a question, a challenge question to either confirm we're on the right path or identify different things we could be doing. I imagine that makes it more likely that someone doesn't take something defensively. Like you're warning, right. you're giving like time out. I'm going to challenge, I'm intentionally challenging you. Yeah, it's not even so much a time out. It's just the idea that it creates a new frame mm. that we look through. That's all about how we continue on the journey together. And we're just really just checking the map. I like that. When I was on your Brilliance and Passion podcast, you asked me a question that stuck with me. And I don't think I'd been asked anywhere else. So I'm going to spin it and ask it on you. 
What do you hope that people say about you when you were not around? I hope that they say that guy's right. If people knew the full range of his views, they would throw him out of all the meetings. <laughs> it's because I have never done really well with narratives because I found the stronger the narrative, the more of a vested interest, some interest, or you know, some body, usually a money type body, has in pushing a view. And we see this a lot in all of those topics they say we're not supposed to discuss, politics, religion, sex, you name it. And the fact is, the fact is, separate from the truth, the fact mm -hmm. is that there really are very few absolutes. And I have found that, you know, I don't really debate these issues online, but I'll have these conversations at length with people in person. So I have discovered overall, and I have friends that run the gamut of whatever ideological spectrum you want to have. I mean, if you want to say politics, I know people way over on the left. I know people over way on the right where each of them will say, what are you doing speaking with that person? They're full of shit. No, they're not. It's simply a matter, and I've discovered this. It's somewhat overgeneralized, but it still holds up. A lot of us agree broadly on the what and the why of what can make the world a better place with us in it. Where we diverge is the how and by whom. And that's where you get the narratives, and that's where you get the interest pushing a narrative. So when I'm able to recognize that and set that aside, you know, you have biases, you probably have views on certain things that are very strong for you, and I have them as well. So I'm not going to deny that it exists, but I'm able to say, okay, I feel strongly about this. I'm unlikely to ever be persuaded one millimeter from this point of view. So I'm going to take this, capture this, set it over here on the shelf where I can see it wherever I need it. And at the same time, while it's sitting over here, it's safe, it's secure, nobody can touch it. I'm not going to get challenged. I'm not going to feel degraded or anything along those lines. I'm just going to hear what's happening over here. And I'm going to allow myself to listen for understanding rather than listen to respond. Mm. To me, that's another version of manhood is being secure enough in what you believe in and what you have to say that you can willingly place yourself in the range of another point of view and be able to hear it and not have to challenge it or disagree with it. Just listen. And this is where another reason, let's bring it back to the real men feel thing. This is where I also think that the definitions of manhood sometimes get distorted and bastardized. Well, that person there, so full of it. What, you know, did you tell them off? That person who disagrees with you, you just sat there and nodded and let them walk all over you. What kind of man are you? Well, to me, the fact that I could create an open space to possibly learn something and possibly put them in a place where they may be willing to learn something when I share back is my definition of manhood. I have this over here. It's on the shelf. It's safe, secure. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can affect me with it. I don't have to worry about this at all. And I can have this conversation without feeling that it is a challenge or feeling that I need to be right or wrong. Here's something I learned in the workplace once from one of my supervisors, and I could not believe this actually existed out there. And he taught me this really simple concept of how to interact with coworkers when something you said earlier turns out to no longer be the case or you were quote unquote wrong. Well, you don't have to say, oh, I'm so sorry I was wrong. What you can say is, all right, I'd like to amend what I said earlier. And that's the key word right there, amend. 
you know, we're both in the United States. How long have we had our constitution? 285 years, something like that? More like 232 years we've had the same constitution. Are we still using the exact same constitution that was promulgated in 1789? It is the same constitution. However, it has these things attached to it, amendments. So the original document remains valid. However, there are certain things within it that in some cases, thank God, have been amended to reflect the progress of society and to allow the original to remain. So nobody has to say, well, this constitution is just all wrong. We have to write a new one now. That's why our constitution is endured for 232 years and one of the longest continuously enforced constitutions in the world with no serious discussion. I mean, everybody hears that there's one or two people saying tear it up and throw it away. But there's no real serious discussion about really doing anything with it other than maybe somebody has their favorite amendment they'd like to enact. But still, that in itself proves the point. They're not even talking about doing away with it. They're talking about amending it, just bringing it up to date, taking what was said before and applying it to where we are now. And so to me, another variation of manhood is when you have that confidence that you can amend what you said before confidently based on new learnings, new discoveries, seeing progress, seeing different points of view. Right. And as a man, I don't want to put somebody in a position where they have to admit they're wrong or beg forgiveness for even thinking such a thing. Or how could you be so stupid as to have that idea? Right. That doesn't solve anything. All it does is it puts them back in that place of their manhood being challenged. Rather than giving them the space to be a man, and, you know, we are speaking about men here, but the same applies to women, where they can experience and enjoy their own growth as they amend and evolve. When I was growing up, a saying I heard often was, you can be right or you can be happy. And as a man, I thought it was much more important to be right. right. As I've grown, oh, I'll choose happy all the time. Uh-huh. So for my definition of being a man, there's a strength in having a willingness to be wrong. Right. To learn something new, to have a new experience, right? To not be wrong because someone told you that you're wrong and got in your face louder. No, that's not it. In fact, I cover in the book, if you challenge somebody that way, what you're really asking for is a disagreement because the person where you ask them to, well, can you just admit that? Well, they may take the opposite view because they feel challenged rather than inviting them to their opportunity to enjoy the evolutionary process of their own growth. Mm, Love that. In your evolutionary process of your own growth... Is there a favorite habit practice book that you find yourself recommending the most or wish you could recommend more? Yep. It's no longer in print, but you can find a million copies on eBay and Amazon. It's called FDR by Ted Morgan. It came out in 1985. It's predictably a biography of our 32nd president, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And his life story actually reflects some of what we're sharing today. As a young man, he was the child of one of America's top families, his fifth cousin had been president of the United States. And he was raised with a very strict set of moral parameters as he was expected to comply with. And if he didn't comply with them, then he was bad. So however, he was a human being like everybody else. He uh, sometimes had issues with his temper. He wasn't the perfect husband by any means. I mean, that's well known. And it almost ruined him. It almost ruined his career because he found himself in a moral quandary with an investigation that had been done while he was assistant secretary of the Navy into the behaviors of certain sailors. You can fill in the blanks on what that would have meant back in 1919. It pretty much wrecked his political career at that point. 
And he found himself in conflict with the person that he was told he was supposed to be versus what he had actually done. And a year later, uh, he got the polio. That put him in another situation. After years of therapy, he barely got to the point where he could stand with braces, crutches, and his two sons holding him up. However, he could still be in politics. So he had to make a very tough decision there where it's, okay, do I keep trying for the rest of my life to walk again, knowing that I probably never will walk unassisted? Or do I heed these entreaties that I get and these offers? It's like, I can still follow Cousin Teddy's plan. I can still be governor of New York. I can still be president. I can still be on that path. And he chose that. And people say he beat polio for that reason. Well, I mean, he never did regain the use of his legs, but he beat polio in the sense he didn't let it ruin his life. Now, along with that, he went through a bit of a moral transformation. And it was said of him that he made a compact with God where he exchanged the ability to walk for missing qualities. And what that ultimately came down to was a recognition that he was nothing more than a human being like anybody else. He himself had imperfections, and it made him more able to relate to others when they had imperfections. They say that uh, his name made him assistant secretary of the Navy. Polio made him president. Very cool. The reason I recommend that book to your audience is it's a very interesting journey, in my view, of a man who develops his own manhood by gaining self-awareness in middle age. And by taking action. Yes. Yeah, cool. So Adam, I know you're up to lots of things with speaking and books and podcasts. Is there one best place that people can learn more about you and see all that you're up to? Well, yeah. And I know this isn't really what our interview has been about. So if you'll allow me, I'll give people two resources. And they can choose based on where they see themselves in the moment right now, based on your truth. One of which is go pick up my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. Just go to www.thegroundhogbook.com, www.thegroundhogbook.com, and that'll give you your purchase options. It's available very economically in several retailers. And if you're interested in podcasting, and let me first give the link, and then I'll explain why I think this might be of interest to some of your listeners. The best way, join my Facebook group. Go to www.everythingpodcasting.com group. That's www.everythingpodcasting.group. This is a community for everybody who's involved in podcasting, either the host or the guest or is interested in either. If you find yourself in a situation where you recognize you have the power to claim your own voice, to be the voice for your audience, hosting a podcast or being a guest on podcast, and you and I have hosted each other and been guests on each other's shows, is an incredible way to do that. And I've shared so many times how I will tell stories about my own imperfections and candidly massive royal screw-ups I've made that might make people think, why would you ever admit to that? There's a real simple reason why. Because that's real-world stuff and a lot of people. Think of it this way. Uh, You've heard the phrase, your finest hour. In order to have your finest hour, you have to have some hours that aren't your finest hour. In fact, you probably have some that are pretty bad. Probably said things, done things, and you knew better at the time. And at the time, you did it for reasons that are a little hard to explain now. Part of being a man, part of your real man thing, is being able to recognize that it's just part of your own natural evolution to becoming a better man, to becoming somebody who makes the world a better place by being part of it. So as a host or as a guest, you can speak for your audience 
give that voice and thereby open the conversations that they themselves are not in a position to have themselves and guide them through their journey so they may be able to get further along without hitting the same potholes you did. And if I can share one story about one of my screw-ups and it causes somebody else to miss a pothole so that they don't get their vehicle of life out of alignment, then I feel I've given back. And I feel that I made amends for that in the best way that I possibly can, which is to prevent it from happening somewhere else and to help somebody else have a better journey. Yep. Say time and time again, silence kills men. And it takes more men being authentic, being vulnerable, sharing the screw-ups, sharing the things that they, oh my God, if anyone knows this, I'm ruined. Plus everybody knows like, oh, they've gone through that too. I just went through that or I'm afraid of going through that. You know, about 10 years ago, I went through a really awful breakup. I mean, it was just nasty. And a lot of men have gone through that. And I was so afraid. Well, what if she starts trouble on social media and it starts affecting my reputation? And I started confiding in fellow men about this. And you know what I heard over and over again? Hey, welcome to the club, pal. And the thing is, is it sometimes takes that level for us to even be able to relate to each other and understand that we do have a lot of shared experiences. And what we think is so horrible and tragic to us is something that a lot of people go through. But because of the silence that we're expected to hold due to somebody else's definition of what it means to be a man, we miss the opportunities to experience our mutual growth by sharing these things and supporting each other. Right on. Yeah, we can all evolve together by being honest yes. with each other, by supporting each other. Yeah. Not judging, not enraging, not victimizing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, Adam. I really appreciate my everything that you're doing, everything you're sharing with the world. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks everyone for listening and tuning in today. Wherever you're listening to Real Men Feel, wherever you're discovering that real men actually feel and it helps, <laughs> please share this with someone. Leave a review, a comment, subscribe. Let someone know that might be going through some tough times, that they aren't alone. And you can always reach out to me at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. And you can directly support this show and really help us reach more men and let more men know that they aren't alone and that silence is killing them, perhaps. There's a link in the show notes. You can give as little as 99 cents a month to support Real Men Feel, to support the men in your life, to support yourself. And until next time, always be good to yourself. Be good to yourself.